Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode... Well, it's only 48 hours to go until the French presidential elections. We've got some exclusive polling from YouGov to see who's ahead, Marine Le Pen or Emmanuel Macron. We also tour the country and ask um, some journalists in different parts of France where different where, where Macron's ahead, Le Pen's ahead, what are the issues at play. There seems to be a big urban-rural divide, so that, that'll be a really interesting thing coming up uh, later on the podcast. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel. And today, no Melanie Reid this week, so we've got James Forsyth and Rachel Cundiff. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, normally on a Friday morning, it's Melanie Reid and James Forsyth, but Melanie's off this week, so we have got James Forsyth. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. Uh, James obviously writes for The Times and for The Spectator and joining us from The New Statesman in a happy, I don't know what, I don't know, uh, Rachel Cullis. Morning, Rachel. <laughs> Good morning. Sort of balance, I think, is head. what you were looking for. Balance. That's what I was looking for. Balance, balance. Although we don't really go in for that sort of, you know, um, <laughs> we're not setting you up for a confrontation. Everyone happily agreeing is much more our stuff. Um, uh, Rachel, nice to have you with us. James, let's start with your column today then. And uh, Boris Johnson, as you say, fighting for his political life. And the Tories, I mean, sort of slightly beyond that, Tories fearing that the idea of one nation conservatism might be going with him. Yeah, I think, well, if you think back to the Tory election victory in December 2019, which seems a long time ago now, I think one of the things that most excited Tories about this was that they could once more kind of call themselves a truly national party. They had representatives in every part of Great Britain. You know, Michael Gove made a great thing about the fact that the Notting Hill Carnival and Durham Miners Gala would both take place in, in, in Tory seats. And I, but I think they, I think even before Partygate, they have struggled to satisfy that broad coalition. I remember about a year ago after the local elections, lots of Southern Tory MPs came back and saying, uh, and obviously because of COVID, they hadn't been out canvassing much beforehand. They came back saying, well, we've got a real problem because lots of our traditional voters in the South see levelling up as kind of code for taxing the South more to spend more money in the North. And I think that, they, I think that what, they hoped they could achieve in 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 those heady days in 2019 was you know a kind of realignment that would kind of re-establish the Tories as a natural party of government for the next few decades, and I, I think that is what they've not managed uh, to succeed in doing. Is it in part do you think, James? Because actually, the the mission of the Conservative government under Boris Johnson going into that 2019 election was actually very narrow. You know, in terms of. Uh, ending ending the, the the what was it by that point three years of crisis over Brexit, 
uh, putting that to bed and seeing off the threat by Joe uh, posed uh, by Jeremy Corbyn. That was quite a narrow endorsement from the electorate, wasn't it? And actually, as a result, the, lots of Tory MPs and strategists and so on managed to project onto it what they actually thought it all meant. But in the eyes of voters, it probably wasn't that in the first place. Yeah, look, I think you're right that part of the problem was that they, they essentially achieved the two things that the, the, the Tory election victory was meant to do, you know, the morning afterwards. You know, they had, they had broken the Brexit deadlock and they had stopped Jeremy Corbyn from uh, becoming prime minister. And I think this is one of the other things that is, is causing a problem for the Tories, which is in 2019, you know, uh, they, they had Jeremy Corbyn with which to kind of scare Tory voters back into line. Uh, and that's one of the things they've lost because, you know, Keir Starmer might not be inspiring, but he's not frightening either. Um, and and so I think that, that that is part of their problem. And they've now got to this, this bizarre situation, which you saw yesterday, where Tory MPs aren't prepared to move against Boris Johnson, certainly not in sufficient numbers, but they're not prepared to, to, to take... Um, to take a hit for looking like they're covering up for him either. So they're in this weird position where they won't back him more accurate. Rachel is an innocent bystander in all of this. What do you make <laughs> of it? <laughs> I, I think I think James is, is is spot on, and I think that the the fact is that that majority that the Conservatives won in in 2019 was so much about. Brexit and getting Brexit done. And that's how that, that was what was connecting that weird coalition, you know, uh, home counties in the south, red wall seats in the north, uh, young people, old people, you know, everyone. Um, and that's kind of happened now. Brexit has been done. You can argue about how successful that was. But that debate has has moved on. And there doesn't seem to be a particular vision or ideology holding the party together. I mean, it's still trying to claim that it's the party of low taxes, having just put up national insurance by 10% on, on most people with the tax burden at the highest I think it's ever been in, in peacetime. Now, you can make arguments that that was necessary because COVID and the NHS, but you can't do that while also claiming to be the party of the, the small state and, uh, and, and and low taxes, which is historically what they've been. At the same time, um, you, you know, there's there's this government trying to feed red meat to its its um its right wing base on things like immigration policy and, and Rwanda, and there are certainly some in the party that would like to make either the culture wars or, or net zero the next Brexit battleground. Um, but there are quite a lot of uh, MPs in the party who disagree with that sort of profoundly and the lack of respect among MPs for number 10 as a result of all the scandals we've seen basically since the Owen Paterson row uh, means that they're less likely to keep quiet about that. And actually this week does feel like a slight sort of tribute act to the mess they made of the Owen Paterson stuff uh, back in the autumn of like you are going to vote for this thing oh maybe we can vote for that all right fine we won't do that. Um, Rachel, just picking out something that James said about how uh, Keir Starmer isn't inspiring, but he's not scary either. Do you think he's getting better? I mean, I'm not sure he's ever going to be the sort of he's going to have the sort of razzmatazz of a, of a sort of Tony Blair. But do you think he's he's going up in the estimations of the public? Because sometimes these things aren't like a seesaw. Just because Boris Johnson is is down doesn't necessarily mean that Keir Starmer and Labour are up. And actually, very, very quietly, some Labour MPs privately wonder why they're not doing rather better, given everything. Well, you can believe two things, can't you? You can you can see that the mess that the Tories are in now is very much a mess of their own making or, or Boris Johnson's making. Uh, and you can, and, and that's why they're, they're having all these issues. Um, and you can also think that uh, under... Uh, 
Corbyn, for example, when there were lots of, of, of scandals and gaffes and missteps uh, in the Theresa May government, um, his team weren't able to capitalise on them in that particular way. And that there is skill in making scandals work for you, which I think Keir Starmer has definitely got better at. I mean, they got what they wanted this week on the vote, which was they wanted to push Tory MPs into a position where they either backed Labour's motion, which is what happened in the end, or they had to essentially vote for a cover-up, which uh, would have handed the opposition uh, really great campaign ads for the election that we've got <laughs> coming up. Now, that's a, that's a win-win for Labour, and they, they played that very well, and they were very successful. I do think, though, that probably most people in the country still don't really know who Keir Starmer is or what he stands for. And if the Tories lack a, a vision and an ideology, then that, that that criticism is certainly, certainly true of Labour as well. Just for the moment, not being either Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn seems to be quite a productive strategy. Yes. And actually, what was really striking, I thought, this week, uh, James, at PMQs, is Boris Johnson sort of uh, clearly trying out some attacks on uh, Keir Starmer, calling him what was it, um, Jeremy Corbyn in an Islington suit, despite the fact that Keir Starmer's kicked Jeremy Corbyn out of the party and uh, isn't from Islington, unlike Boris Johnson, who did used to live in Islington. Nothing wrong with Islington. <laughs> I, sh- I should say, for the, for the sake of transparency, I also live in Islington. Well, yeah, no, so do I. This is a kind of classic media cliche. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the only person no. who doesn't is is uh, is Keir Starmer. He lives in Camden. <laughs> yeah, he's much uh, much groovier. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think Star. On, I think Jason. Starmer has a. I think Ian Martin is right though. Starmer, Starmer does have a Corbyn weakness, which is you you can argue that you. Know, that you can argue all sorts of ways why he thought the accommodation was was right, but he did campaign to make yeah. Jeremy Corbyn prime minister in 2017 and in 2019, and I think by 2019 it was you know if it wasn't clear enough in 2017 by 2019 it was it was quite clear why that would not be a good idea, um, and I don't think he can entirely airbrush that out of his past i mean that 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 is going to be difficult for him and i think there's also going to be and look i don't i don't think boris johnson is 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 in a less strong position to make this on the on uh, argument now because of his his current difficulties but there also is something about the fact that keir starmer did for a very long time want a second referendum and that that is that that is going to be you know problematic for him i think one of the things that that Rachel's right about, which is if the next election is a is a referendum on the Tories' record, then the kind of Starmer strategy of relying on that old adage in British politics that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them, will work. But if the Tories somehow, you know, manage to kind of reinvent themselves yet again and turn it into a choice, then I think that, that lack of Labour definition will become more of a problem. Well, we'll see uh, how that... It feels like they're both in a not a great place although Boris Johnson is slightly worse I'm, I'm slightly conscious of the time so let's uh move on because we want to talk about the Queen should we leave the Queen alone Rachel I'm so pleased you asked that because I've got a new statesman column coming out today on exactly that subject uh, answering uh, yes for goodness sake show some compassion we don't need to publicize pictures of her looking like an extra from Lord of the Rings who's trans- transformed Harry and Meghan into ponies um, if you don't know what picture I'm I'm t- referring to go, go look it up because I cannot <laughs> describe in words on the radio how weird it is you have to see it she's also had a very creepy Barbie doll made of her this week released for her birthday 
birthday and her platinum jubilee um which is also just ugh. i mean who wants to be made into a barbie doll and the woman is 96 we can stop sort of obsessing over her in a weird fetishizing kind of way and and just accept that, that there'll be a new king at some point and we should probably leave him alone too and and maybe our obsession with the royal family isn't really healthy for either us or certainly not for them James. i just feel a bit sorry for her <laughs> she does seem to have an awful lot of grief to be honest a 96 year old um what do you think james Should we just leave the queen alone I think one of these things is we, we we are all very conscious of how big a presence she has been in our lives and how she acts as this this link back to our past. If you you know if you if you think about the fact you know I think that she she is the the, the link to to the wartime generation and 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 I think I think that she has been such a kind of constant presence. I think we are all beginning to think, oh my god, what what will we do? I mean, even people who are not kind of died in the war monarchists, but you know, what will you do without her? And also the skill the skill with which she has navigated the role of being a kind of constitutional monarch. I mean, it it is it is remarkable to think, considering how long she's been on the throne, how few rows there have been about her and her views on politics and the like, when you consider how much change has taken place in, in during her reign. Uh, just finally, then, Rachel, because I'm I'm conscious. I'm, I'm basically I seem to be the last person on earth who's not uh, spoken to you about this. But uh, <laughs> keeping your name, do you write a column? It was a week or so ago. Now you wrote a column for the New Statesman about why you decided to keep your name after getting married, and it's gone wild, hasn't it? I got a lot of pushback for it, which I'm surprised about because I thought it was 2022. Um, I, I wrote it just shortly before getting married and, and and there are lots of reasons why different people different couples different women choose to keep their names change their names to their husbands double barrel them make up something new but um the argument that i just get bombarded with is it's not your name anyway it's just your father's name so why does it matter and wow. i just i didn't realize that i was only borrowing this name for 31 years i kind of thought that it was it was mine but apparently not um, I also got a lot of comments saying that my now husband should have seen it as a red flag because I'm clearly not committed enough to our relationship by completely redefining my identity. <laughs> so, um, you know, bad news for him, I guess. Do you think it makes a difference that you've got a bit of that you've got a public profile? Because I mean, I know my wife when uh, we got married, she was she was working as a journalist and, and I had always kept her maiden name because that was what she was known as professionally. Do you think that makes a difference? I mean, I love that you think I've got a profile. That's very kind of you to say. Um, maybe, have. but I... You want Times Radio. doesn't get better than that. <laughs> I, I, I kind of decided at the age of about five that I was not going to change it because my mother, who is not in the public eye at all, um, that my parents have been married for decades and she never changed hers. And she sort of said, well, why would I? All my bank accounts and credit cards were in my name. Why would I, why would I change that? So... That was just what I what I grew up with. Um, but certainly, no, I'm, I'm not in remotely tempted to let go of any name recognition that I might have clawed <laughs> for myself. It's good for the that. Googles. It's good for the Googles. <laughs> what about you, James? Uh, we, we've spoken before. Obviously, your, your other half is Allegra Stratton, and she is known as Allegra Stratton. Uh, so did, did, did you ever have a conversation where you said, no, you are, you are becoming Forsyth? Um, no, we did. I, I was in favour of a double barrel, but that 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 got dismissed on the grounds that this this was merely kind of putting off the problem from 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 one generation to the next, if you see what I mean. In that, where you're going to end up with a kind of quadruple barrel. Well, that's um, what I wanted. When children. people have gone for the double um, barrel, what do you do in two or three generations when you've suddenly got like eight words? 
that's Turn them into acronyms. I think that I think the answer might be kind of portmanteau names, you know, like you have kind of Formel or, or Pinkovic. <laughs> Maybe we should all all combine to make entirely new names. I, I, I think it's one of those things which is we are we are we are kind of in a muddle, which is no one. Qu- the, the, the double barreling thing works for one generation, but it clearly can't be a kind of permanent um, can't be a permanent solution. I think I, t- I tell you what. If there's a wedding I want to go to, it's the it's the Finkelvich wedding. I think that would be a good <laughs> dude, uh, Daniel Finkelstein and Donovanovic. Rachel Cunliffe and James Forsyth. Then, of course, you can read James in the Times every Friday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box, and you'll also be able to read my column in the Times every Saturday. Uh, this week, I've written about Matt Hancock's diaries, if that's your sort of thing that you'd like. Right, up next, the French presidential elections. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So this is it. The countdown is on. We're into the last stretch of the French presidential election. Voters heading to the polls on Sunday for the second round of voting. Two contenders, Emmanuel Macron. Trying to be the first uh, French president in ages to win a second term. Up against, as he was five years ago, Marine Le Pen. Now, to put these into perspective, this time five years ago, back in 2017, Emmanuel Macron was ahead by 25 points. We'll find out how he's doing now when we reveal some exclusive YouGov polling uh, a little bit uh, in about five or ten minutes' time. But despite the gap tightening, will it be enough for Marie Le Pen to win? What would it take to shift those tectonic plates? And there's no getting away from the fact it would be remarkable. It was remarkable when Emmanuel Macron won five years ago, uh, breaking the hold held by the traditional centre-left and centre-right parties. It would be even more extraordinary if Marie Le Pen uh, were to win on the third time of asking. 
we sometimes think that British politics has been mad in the last few years, uh, not least with the Brexit vote. But the two main parties have remained, but they have been uh, cast aside in France. So let's find out what's happening across France. It's such a big country, and obviously things ha different things happen in different parts of the country. Let's head to three regions in France and try to get a sense of what the issues are uh, there and how they're playing out. Let's head to uh, the southeast of France, first of all. Uh, uh, in Nice, Olivia Sclavo is the news editor of the nice, of Nice Matin, a daily newspaper down there in the southeast. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, nice to have you with us. Explain for us for how the election has played out in your part of France and and who is ahead. So um, in Nice, uh, Emmanuel Macron came up uh, ahead of everyone else. Um, although as a whole department, the Alpes-Maritimes, uh, Marine Le Pen uh, came on top. So that's interesting. So, so uh, that that was what happened. What in the first in the first round? So, what does that look like then going into Sunday? What? Why is it the what? What's Marine Le Pen got, which is appealing to to your part of France? Um, traditionally, uh, Nice and uh, across the Alpes Maritimes have been giving their votes to the right-wing candidates. Uh, in recent years, the extreme right-wing vote has become more and more important, especially in rural areas. Uh, some of them who were voting for the Communist Party back in the days. Uh, so as she has finished in the first place in the Alpes Maritimes, um, and with sort of the... Eric Zemmour votes uh, as well. She is looking um, very like she's looking to be a very a very strong uh, probably winner in the department. Although um, Emmanuel Macron has uh, arrived on top in every major cities, Nice, Cannes, Antibes. So it's gonna it's gonna be tight, but potentially Marine Le Pen has a go in. Nice and Alpes Maritimes. Is there that divide of sort of urban uh, and suburban rural? The, the Emmanuel Macron appeals to a sort of more metropolitan city-based voter, and Marie Le Pen appeals to those outside the big cities. Absolutely, that's absolutely right. Um, we've seen that time and time again. Um, this this time, this election, uh, she has not like we've. Surprisingly, uh, Alpes Maritimes and Nice is a very strong Les Républicains area. Uh, Valérie Pécresse was expected to be uh, to be strong there. She hasn't. She merely gets. Uh, she merely got to five percent in Nice. Um, that was a big shock, and all of that uh, right wing electorate has uh, gone to. Mostly Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen. Does she? Does, does Marine Le Pen sort of play this up, sort of casting Emmanuel Macron as the as the sort of you know we would call it in the UK the Westminster bubble, the the, the London based metropolitan elite journalist, and actually you know the, the Brexit vote for instance was really cast as a sort of sending a message to to Westminster and to London. Is that is that a sort of a weak point for Emmanuel Macron? It is possible, yeah. It's possibly one of his one one of the the point that uh, Marine Le Pen is trying to to get across that he's the the ultra rich uh, candidates, uh, and he appeals to the bobo, the uh, you call them hipsters, maybe. Um, <laughs> it's she 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 is very she is very much trying to uh, 
to Rada and uh, that she uh, she wants to appeal to to the people where Emmanuel Macron is uh, is yeah the elite sort of candidates. Although uh, it's turned out that uh, in Nice, uh, which is known for is sort of very much against Paris uh, stance, Emmanuel Macron did come did uh, arrived on top. I just wonder, uh, just finally, in terms of sort of individual policies, um, what are sort of what's what's uppermost in uh, the minds of voters in the southeast of France? What is it the the uh, cost of living crisis? Is it France's place in the European Union? Is it the war in Ukraine? What what do you think is, is guiding the, the sort of the the actual policies which are guiding people's votes, or is it down to the personalities of the two main uh, contenders? I, th- I, th- I think uh, across France and Nice, the cost of living is clearly playing a, a bit a big part in people's choice. Yeah. Um, although the question of immigration is very, uh, very much at the at the top of a lot of pe- a lot of candidates and people in, in Nice and uh, and the region. Although um, whether it's a, it's a irrational fear or um, a complete um, how would you say a, a reality? We've seen um, people coming from uh, Syria, Tunisia, uh, Africa coming from the border. Nice is very much against the Italian border, so we've seen people coming from the border. We had some issues there, and uh, Nice is a very attractive, uh, attractive place. Uh, therefore, we have seen a lot of immigration. Uh, it's, it's it's traditional place of of immigration uh, and that has been on uh, on on people's mind a lot Olivia it's really good to speak thank you very much that Olivia Sclavo news editor at Nice Matter uh, giving us a picture from the southeast of France Uh, let's head now to uh, Occitanie Uh, Pauline Compan is a journalist for La Tribune good morning good morning Matt now, your part of France, um, uh, uh, Mélenchon, the, the, the big left winger, did very well. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Um, traditionally, Occitanie is a left wing land, um, um, socialist mostly. Um, in this election, however, uh, Marine Le Pen uh, won the first round uh, at the scale of Occitanie. She came first, um, devancing Emmanuel Macron. But. And... Um, She's actually, she, yeah, she, but actually, she she didn't win in the two main cities, which are uh, Toulouse and Montpellier. Uh, these two cities placed Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left wing candidate, uh, in the first place. And that's interesting. So is, is that again, as we were just discussed with Olivia, uh, that 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 sort of rural urban divide? Is it that Marie Le Pen still struggles to make that? impact in the big cities yeah i think so yeah uh she's still tr- struggling with the big cities but in occitanie uh she has two uh strong base uh which are uh, perpignan and bezier uh both cities they elected a rassemblement national member as a mayor and uh, she is building from this base it's she's, she's expanding her voice reserve and in terms of uh, the support, the base of uh, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, where does that vote go? Because obviously it's a slightly, the, for Brits, it's a slightly strange system, this, that you have lots of candidates and they all get whittled down. 
do the um th- those candidates who've been knocked out are they publicly endorsing uh, either Macron or Le Pen or are they they keeping out of it and leaving voters to make up their own minds? Uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon calls uh, for no vote for Marine Le Pen. So he doesn't he didn't say um, vote for Macron but he, he said no vote should go to <laughs> Marine Le Pen. Um, and here in Occitanie, uh, uh, the main character of politics here, uh, um, the woman who ruled the region, Occitanie, is a socialist woman, Carol Delga, and uh, she calls uh, for uh, Macron, actually. Um, and oh, I think, um, uh, according to the last poll, uh, Emmanuel Macron should uh, won here, but it will be a tight match. And was it a surprise how well Mélenchon did uh, nationally too? I mean, he, he was on the, in the first round, 22%. Marine Le Pen only on 23.1%. It could have been a very different election if he'd have just edged ahead of her. Yeah, uh, actually, yes. He, he, he was really tight. And um, uh, also, uh, there was uh, a lot of candidates on the left wing Side. So um, I think about the uh, Green Party, for example, or the Socialist Party, uh, Communist Party as well. So if you gather all these uh, far wing, uh, left wing, sorry, votes, uh, maybe you could have turned the election around. But for now, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon has the election in his hand in a way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. Thank you very much for that picture. Uh, Paul, uh, Pauline Compan uh, from La Tribune in Occitanie, uh, down in the south of France. Let's head to the north now and Normandy. Carol Le Goff is a journalist at La Presse de la Manche, uh, the newspaper, uh, daily newspaper in Cherbourg. Good morning. Good morning. Now, uh, Normandy's more of a, of a Emmanuel Macron stronghold. Is that right? Yes, it's right. If we look at the global results of uh, this first round, um, Emmanuel Macron uh, obtained um, 29% of the votes of uh, Norman people, and Marine Le Pen was second with 27%. After in the third place, it is uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is close to 19%. But if we really observe closely, deeply the results, we see clearly that um, uh, Marine Le Pen did good results in the countryside. In the little uh, villages, uh, we have more than 1,005 cities who put Marine Le Pen, Le Pen first, whereas uh, only 1,010 put Macron first. So if we look uh, deeply in the results, uh, Marine Le Pen seems to be uh, preferred in the countryside, and Emmanuel Macron in um, other cities, bigger, and in the biggest city of Normandy, like Rouen, uh, it is uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon who came first. And what is that based on? Is that based on their personalities and uh, sort of political background? Or is that based on their policy offer? Is Marine Le Pen uh, making a direct pitch to people who live in more rural areas? Um, we told um, about that a few minutes earlier, but it's true that people who are in the countryside maybe feel um, uh, far away from the services, uh, uh, from uh, maybe uh, with incomes who don't, uh, don't feel well and they, they prefer uh, Marine Le Pen because they want to change. But if I, have to, if, can, 
if I can add uh, a figure, um, I would like to say also that the participation uh, wasn't as good as usual for that kind of election. And it's still important to tell that because uh, in La Manche, the territory where I work, we, are, we have 400,000 people who can express their opinion and we have 100,000 people who didn't do it. They choose not to put uh, a bullet. So it is also a fact that a lot of people were um, not convinced by this campaign and they choose not to vote. That's interesting that, that, that yeah, the, the, it's, it's not excited. It's not excited the nation, I suppose, because it is a rerun of what happened um, last time. Around. Just finally, I wanted to ask you, given you are in Normandy, about fishing. Sometimes it gets slightly overblown in British politics. It's, it's a very sort of totemic issue when you look at the actual economic impact. Is, is fishing, Brexit even, is that, is that a part of the debate of what's happening in Normandy? Um. Of course, we talk about a lot of subjects. Uh, fishing is one of that subject, but maybe in our territory, close to Cherbourg, at 30 kilometers, uh, we have the nuclear plant of Flamandine. Um, so energy is also a, a huge uh, issue here on our territory because um, the candidates uh, have different points of view about uh, should we... Um, do uh, more nuclear or not, but uh, um, also should we have um, um, the, the offshore wind energy or, no, or not? And here in Cherbourg, we have um, also a special factory with um, making blades uh, for that uh, offshore wind energy. And uh, this factory employed hundreds of people. So we have hundreds of uh, employees in uh, that kind of energy, but also thousands of employees uh, in nuclear uh, energy. So that is a huge topic, even if also fish fishing is a, a topic. Brexit uh, was a huge topic here on our territory, but um, energy as well is a huge uh, concern. That's really interesting. Thank you very much for that. That's Carol Lagoff there joining us from Normandy, a journalist at La Presse de la Manche, the daily newspaper in Cherbourg. So that's the picture across France, the sort of the mood on the ground. But what are the polls actually telling us? Patrick English, Associate Director of Political and Social Research at YouGov, is in Paris. He's been crunching the numbers and is going to reveal some new exclusive polling. Hi, Patrick. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. So what does this new, with two days to go, what does this new YouGov poll tell us? Yeah, so we've been polling the French election for the past uh, a month or so in conjunction with their practice. And what we've been finding is that, well, today Macron is ahead and he's extended his lead slightly based on our previous poll. So he's now up to 56% of current voting intention with Marine Le Pen down up in 44%. So Macron looks as if he's going to win. It's going to be a lot closer than in 2017, but still it's going to be a fairly comfortable victory for the incumbent president. I was going to ask that because I mean the the uh, last time around it was what sixty six to thirty four, um, mm. so that is quite a swing towards Marine Le Pen. It, do you get any sense of what's driving that? It is quite a swing, yes. I think there are two factors which have played into why Le Pen has been able to close the gap this time around. The first is there's quite a lot of dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction, and 
let's say, apathy towards Emmanuel Macron and his administration, particularly among those people who went out and voted Jean Mélenchon in the in, in the first round. So there's people who have economic grievances who aren't doing so well at the minute, and they feel frustrated, and they're quite frustrated with Macron and his administration. The second thing as well is Le Pen has successfully been able to, let's say, soften her image based on 2017. She performed much better in the debates on Wednesday night. And her policy programme has focused on some of the issues which really connect with French voters right now, particularly those struggling financially. And, and what does this tell us about where France is on the sort of political spectrum? Because you've got uh, Macron mm-hmm. sort of positioning himself as the still the sort of ultimate centrist dad. You've got uh, Marine Le Pen has moved from the very far right slightly more towards the centre, sort of softener appeal, but then she only just beat Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's on the sort of far left. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the word to describe French politics I know, will be fractious. So we have the far left doing extremely well, the far right for the second election in the row, getting into the second round. The centrist candidate looks like he's going to win and be the first president in a long time to serve the start segment to actually win a second term. But things are very, very volatile right now. I think France politically is in a situation where there's a lot of frustration and there's a lot of anger, a lot of apathy towards the parties that are kind of being put forward, particularly in second, uh, second rounds. And at the moment, there's a lot of mobilisation different powers in French politics. We saw the old sort of two great parties of this republic, the, the Party Socialist and the Republicans, only got 7% of the vote in round one. So there's it's, it's huge seismic changes happening in French politics right now. There's huge polarisation, fracturing of parties, fracturing of movements. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch, really, and, and, and to be, be here and be a part of. Well, we'll keep across it and uh, we'll see how it all pans out. Patrick English from YouGov, thank you very much for that, uh, revealing that new... New YouGov poll has got Emmanuel Macron on 56%, and Marine Le Pen on 44%. That's a comfortable lead, albeit uh, not quite the 66-44 that uh, Emmanuel Macron enjoyed uh, four, uh, five years ago. So what is all this going to mean then? Let's take a step back and look at this in the, uh, in the broader context of uh, global politics. Uh, Cambridge professor David Runciman, obviously former host of Talking, the Talking Politics podcast. Uh, and we spoke, uh, he, he joins me now. Morning, David. Hi, hi. Uh, we we spoke a couple of weeks ago when I was in Cambridge, and you said that you, the one thing you were missing mm. from not doing the podcast is not be able to talk about the French presidential election. So we thought we'd well, we did it for you. Um, what sure. have you made about how this is panned out, and what it tells us about the state of French politics? Yeah, I mean, I think when we spoke, it looked like it might be closer. I mean, that poll you've just heard, it really would be an astonishing shock now um, if Le Pen won. I think it would be a bigger shock even than than Brexit or Trump. I mean, these polls are the margin is wider than either either the Brexit or the Trump case. And that the last 10 days of the campaign does seem to have made a difference. You know, they always say in French politics that people vote with their heart in the first round and with their head in the second round. And some of that does seem to be happening. But when you take a step back and you've just heard it, the, the really big thing is she's closer. And the two main parties in French politics that have dominated French politics for two generations have just gone. Uh, so whatever happens after this, something huge has changed. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times. And it brings together the real life stories from our obituaries desk which have been published for over a century. 
In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be fine. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, (laughs) you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. (laughs) 